Hey, y'all, this is Ryan Cagle, and you are listening, as you may very well know, to the Lessons from Dead Guys podcast, a work of exile liturgy. I am your redneck wannabe theologian in residence, uh, and if you're new to the show, welcome to the Wild Paths. I hope this show will be a signpost for you on your journey through the wilderness of faith and church and spirituality. Uh, and if you're a regular listener, I apologize that this episode is coming to you not just a few days late, but a whole week late. Between battling sickness, as you heard in the first episode of 2019, where my voice by the end of the the recording had almost all but disappeared, uh, and the fact that the place where I record, the church where I work, uh, had been hosting a group of -of out-of-state college kids coming to do some mission work in town, uh, I didn't really have a space or the energy uh, to to record this episode and get it out into the wild. Now, you may be thinking, well, Ryan, in the last episode, you sounded great. Well, the conversation with Dr. Ord, I actually recorded a couple weeks before the first episode of, the, of 2019. So that's why I sounded so much better uh, in the second episode, um, but why the third episode is coming to you a week late. That said, I've been so excited to record this episode. Uh, weeks ago, when I started planning out the content for the new year, this episode has been one of the ones that I've been looking forward to the most. You might consider this episode as a dive, a deep dive into the heart of this whole project and the cornerstone of my spirituality and how I hope to embody the faith that I've inherited from the church and the larger Christian tradition. But first, before we go any further, I need to introduce you to two very important, crucial figures for this episode, but not only just for this episode, but important figures in all of church history, two people who have helped shape the church in unimaginable ways. Two people whose ideas, or at least some of them were eventually deemed heretical, um, but Two very important voices, um, one more negatively so than the other. So without further ado, let me introduce you to the second century heretics, Tatian the Syrian and Marcion. Tatian, we'll start there, uh, traveled to Rome where he first encountered Christianity during his prolonged stay uh, in Rome. And according to his own representation, his abhorrence for the pagan cults and the culture of Rome sparked deep reflections on religious problems in his life. Uh, through the Old Testament, he wrote, he grew convinced of the unreasonableness of paganism. He adopted the Christian religion and became the pupil of Justin Martyr, who was a very important figure in church history. Uh, during this period, uh, period, Christian philosophers like Justin Martyr comp- competed with Greek um, Greek philosophers and, and like Justin Tatian, uh, opened a Christian school in Rome. Second, he was a second century uh, apologist, um, and later on he gets deemed a heretic. Um, but, you know, his, his work to begin with is very important, and his contributions to the church are actually very important. Um, you know, of course, we, we think uh, he was born in Assyria uh, and that he was trained in Greek philosophy. While a young man, he traveled extensively. Um, and like I said, he became disgusted uh, with the pagan philosophy and religion of his day. Uh, and so when he came in contact um, with the teachings of the Christian religion, it, it, it changed him. Um, Again, he was repelled by the grossness of immorality of the pagans and attracted by the holiness of the Christian religion uh, and the simplicity of the scriptures. Uh, and he became a convert probably around um, AD 150. Uh, and he joined the Christian community in Rome where he was a hearer of Justin. Uh, and there's no reason to think that think he was converted by the latter. While Justin lived, Tatian remained orthodox. Uh, and later um, he would be deemed a heretic or become a Gnostic. Um, of the 
Encretite sect. And uh, so later on, um, I guess after Justin's death, maybe uh, as his, you know, leader or as a shepherding person left his life, Tatian's um, perspectives and views changed and his approach to the faith uh, changed. But knowledge of Tatian's life uh, following the death of, death of Justin, Justin is to some extent very obscure. Uh, Irenaeus uh, remarks that after the death of Justin, he was expelled from the church for his new uh, ascetic views. Um, Eusebius claims he found the, you know, this uh, in Cratitic sect as well as for uh, he founded it. Um, as well as for being a follower of the Gnostic leader Valentinius. Um, Scripture-wise, the New Testament stands out for, for the way it chooses to begin by telling one man's life story four different ways uh, in four separate Gospels. So Jesus, uh, something that is... D- different about Tatian, something that he offered the church was this um, this harmonization of the Gospels. So he he took the four Gospels and removed any contradictions and removed and made it into this one story. Uh, but again, so something that stands out about the New Testament is that it's telling this life of Jesus in four, from four different ways, four different perspectives. There's four different Gospels, um, three of which, you know, repeat each other a lot. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um but you know there's a there's this difference in them they're they're not completely the same they the way they are structured the stories they tell the things that they they promote are are, are much different um but i don't know if this bothered tation we don't we don't really know if it's something that he didn't like um or what but we do know um you know that this uh, this repetition of this story within the canon is not accidental we we've the tr- church for whatever reason has decided to hold for gospel's intention right even though they disagree in areas even though they look different they paint different portraits of jesus um they're preserved alongside each other because because this, uh, the different, the difference there and the diversity within their perspectives, um, we need those things. Um, but part, you know, it's, it tells one message kind of, we, we would say, but they're different. They have disagreements and they have diversity among the text. But Tatian, uh, is a second century, you know, he's this Christian thinker. And for whatever reason, uh, he took on this harmonization project that I mentioned where he, he began to weave the four gospels together and to create one, uh, gospel. He took all of these, all the stories and he, he took out things that were in contradictory. He harmonized things that were similar. Um, and he, he incorporates bits of all the four gospels, which scholars, you know, uh, which are, were the, are, are there and scholars have debated on why he did this. If it was a disdain for multiple gospels or if he was just trying to, um, make it easier to read or approach, uh, by the early Christian church, um, that said, you know, this um, may have sought to like to assert some consistency between all the Gospels uh, or remove the errors uh, in service of some kind of goal like that. Um, or maybe just to let go of the contradictory accounts like Jesus's genealogy, which differs between Matthew and Luke, uh, or just a preference for certain accounts. So we don't really know um, his exact reasoning behind why he did this. But Tatian took all four Gospels that are extremely diverse, despite what many Christian traditions, uh, specifically within the ev- evangelical branches of the Western church would tell you that he took a four different accounts, um, 
and harmonized them. So there was no contradiction. There was no error between them. And they all, it was all one story. Um, whereas for whatever reason, we as a church have decided to keep all four gospels together side by side. Um, so moving on, uh, and this, this will play on to the, the later point. Uh, so Marcion, uh, he was an important figure in the early Christianity, uh, but his theology ended up being, um, rejected, uh, even though it seems to have taken root, uh, in some circles within the early Christian church, the proto-Orthodox Christianity, um, he rejected the deity completely described in the Hebrew scriptures in distinct and in distinction affirmed the father of Christ as the true God. Um, so when someone talks about when you, you try to reapproach or reimagine, and I, I've been called a Marcionite more times than I can count when I, when I try to approach the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, um, in ways and or in light of Jesus. Uh, but he had a particular project in mind. So when he read the Hebrew scriptures, he was fully, um, convinced that the God of the Old Testament, the God of, uh, the Hebrew scriptures, was not the father of Jesus. Again, the church fathers denounced this view and they denounced Marcion, uh, and he was eventually excommunicated from the proto-Orthodox church. He published his own list of New Testament books, uh, making him a catalyst in actually speeding up the process of development of the New Testament canon we have today by forcing the early church to respond to his claims. Um, and so he rejected this idea of uh, the Hebrew, the God of the Hebrew scriptures being the God of Jesus, the father of Jesus. Not only that, but he favored the gospel of Luke. He didn't, uh, he didn't want the other gospels in there either, which is kind of similar to Tatian's harmonization project, right? The other thing is that. Uh, he only thought Paul was the true apostle. So he, he didn't want the writings of Peter. He didn't want the writings of anyone else, uh, or James to be considered. Um, so there was the gospel of Luke, the apostle Paul. Those were the primary voices. Those are the, the text, um, that were given validity and, um, everything else was cast to the side. Uh, but a little more on his life. Um, again, he, he was, uh, he was early church. He helped the, because of his resistance and, and his insistence on what he thought was right. It helped speed up this process of creating the canon. Um, but Marcion was born the son of a bishop in Pontus. Um, Roto and Tertullian, young men in Marcion's old age, uh, described him as a described him as a mariner and a shipmaster, respectively. Marcion made a donation of like two hundred thousand. Um, I don't even know the word. Um, the the, the amount of money for the, to the church in Rome. But conflicts with the Church of Rome arose, and he was eventually, like I said, excommunicated, his donation being returned to him. After his excommunication, he returned to Asia Minor, where he continued to lead his many church congregations and teach the Gospel of Marcion, which, like I said, his, some of his views did take hold uh, in these proto-Orthodox communities. Um, in contrast to the other leaders um, of the Christian Church, however, Marcion declared that Christianity was incomplete discontinuity discontinuity with Judaism and entirely opposed uh, to the Hebrew scriptures. Marcion did not claim that the Jewish scriptures were false. Instead, he asserted that they were to be read in an absolute literal manner, thereby developing an understanding that Yahweh was not the same God spoken of by Jesus. For example, Marcion argued that the Genesis account of Yahweh walking through the Garden of Eden, asking where Adam was, had proved Yahweh inhabited a physical body and was without universal knowledge. Um, 
you know, so he he just couldn't reconcile for whatever reason the God um, found in the Hebrew Scriptures with the Father of Jesus. And according to Marcion, the God of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, whom he called the Demiurge, the creator of the material universe, is a jealous tribal deity uh, of the Jews whose law represents legalistic um, justice, who punishes mankind for its sins, the suffering of death. In contrast, uh, the God that Jesus professed in Marcion's view is altogether different being, a universal God of compassion and love who looks upon humanity with benevolence and mercy. Uh, Marcion also produced um, his uh, antitheses uh, um, contrasting the demiurge of the Old Testament with the Heavenly Father of the New Testament. Marcion held to uh, Jesus to be the son of this Heavenly Father, but understood that the incarnation in a, a descetic manner, i.e. That, that an example, a descetic manner means that Jesus' uh, body was only an imitation of a material body and consequently, de- consequently denied Jesus' physical and bodily birth, death, and resurrection. Marcion was the first to introduce an early Christian canon, and like I said, this was a catalyst for the early church. Uh, in developing, uh, going on to develop the canon and decide which books were inspired, which books were not a part of the canon. Uh, and like I said, his his canon, uh, just a little more detail on it, it consisted of only 11 books grouped in two sections um, based on, uh, you know, part of the was based on Luke uh, with parts removed that he did not agree with in, in his views. So he, he kept the Gospel of Luke, a highly edited version. Um, and then a section uh, of 10 epistles of, of Paul, the apostle, uh, also altered to fit his views. Um, Marcion considered him the cor- correct interpreter and transmitter of Jesus's teaching and that all the other apostles uh, were illegitimate. The gospel used by Marcion does not contain elements relating to Jesus's birth, his childhood, although it does contain some elements of Judaism and material challenging Marcion's um, view of Jesus not having an actual body. So these two voices uh, in early in the early church. So I, I also didn't mention about Tatian is that his harmonization was used uh, in the Syrian churches uh, as a lectionary device. It was used um, for years and years and eventually would fall away. Um, but they both have something in common. Uh, Tatian is not considered heretical necessarily for his harmonization of the Gospels because we don't really know his intent, right? Um, but he takes the diversity of the scriptures uh, in, the, in the Gospels and he harmonizes them in such a way as that it makes one coherent story with no contradictions, um, no errors, no difference in storytelling, uh, which is – Problematic. It can be problematic because that, that is truly how many Christian traditions today function. They try to take the Bible, the whole, the whole set of scriptures, not even just the gospels, and harmonize them to the point, um, that their diversity and beauty and the voices, the unique voices of the people throughout the scriptures and their perspectives are not honored and they're not attested to. And a lot of it comes comes down to doctrinal conformity. We need people to have one absolute set of beliefs and ideas and understandings. Uh, and if they don't, then they're hard to control, right? They're hard to keep in together in, in unity. Uh, and in the same way, Marcion in, in a very direct way resisted the diversity of the early church. 
And so I, I, I read a book last year called um, Destroyer of the Gods, uh, Early Christian Distinctiveness in the Roman World by Larry, Dr. Larry Hurtado, uh, which is a really good book that I totally recommend. Um, but something uh, that he talks about is that when people talk about the early church he's, he, or early Christianity, he, he says, which Christianity is because the early church was so diverse. We can tell by the gospels even how diverse the perspectives in the early church was or the fact that you can't you can lay uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians and James's letter side by side and there are contradictions there there are not just contradictions but where it seems as if there's animosity between those two authors but yet in our canon when we come to decide uh, who where there's weight we put them side by side we put them in the same text the same canon the same book and say we need to we need both of their voices even though even though it's clear that they disagree right you could take Mark's um, you know Mark's understanding of Jesus and John's understanding of Jesus those two gospels and they are very radically different, but the early church needed them, right? And so this whole doctrinal uniformity in the proto-Orthodox church or what we would call orthodoxy is not really present. Um, even Paul, he talks about in Ephesians that, you know, that we, that we look forward to the day that we are in the unity of the faith, like it is something is an eschatological thing. It is something in the future that God will bring about this unity that is beyond um, what we can understand unity to be. And so this early Christian movement, this Jesus movement, it was diverse. It was all over the place. Right. Um and so something to me that I feel like, you know, we live in a very pluralistic age today. We live in an age where not everyone around us are Christians anymore. Um, well, I've never, I guess, lived in that world, even growing up in the South, which is typically considered culturally Christian. And I would agree, but I grew up around a diverse uh, group of people who believed and didn't believe or, or, or whatever. Um, but within the early church, if we want to look at a true – what a true pluralistic church looks like, a, you know, um, pluralism is not a bad thing. And the early church uh, held to this unity in their diversity, right? And so there's a difference. Most of the time when we talk about unity in the church today, what we really mean is uniformity. But in the early church, there wasn't this uniformity across the board. There were all these communities trying to live out and contextualize this Christ event. There, these teachings and this life of Jesus and the impact that he had, uh, they were trying to embody that in whatever ways um, they were supposed to be and they could in their context. And so there was diversity among the early churches. There was, you know, the churches in Jerusalem didn't look like the churches in Rome um, and so forth and so on. There's this diversity and it's beautiful. And it's one of the things that I love about the early church. And I have a particular thing. It's almost like a trigger, I guess, about the early churches because, you know, I grew up in a tradition that said we were reclaiming the early church, right? In the Pentecostal charismatic tradition, we're reclaiming the early church. But there is so much demand of uniformity there um, that it doesn't actually reflect what the early church reflected or looked like or, or uh, radiated. So this pre-Orthodoxy or proto-Orthodoxy um, – it's a unity in diversity. It's, it's not doctrinal uniformity. Um, you know, cause that's it's an affliction almost. And, and to recognize the diversity of Christian belief in the early church was just a part of how things functioned, right? Uh, and so today we, I think we need that more than ever. We need to return back to a praxis, um, in an ecclesiology in a, in a way of do, uh, following Jesus that is not limiting to the people who can't affirm the things that we affirm. Um, and like, I love the creed. 
deeds. I love the counsels. I'm thankful for all of these things because I doubt the faith would have been able to be preserved the way that it has without those things, given the context of, of where the church ended up. But the creed, um, if it is meant to exclude and not build bridges, right, to create some kind of baseline structure, um, to build bridges and connections with people, I think that it's not doing what it's meant to do or, or should do, really. Um, I think the church is only as ever as orthodox as it is diverse. So to truly be orthodox, the church has to be diverse. Any claims of orthodoxy that are not situated in an active desire for the flourishing of dynamic and diverse expressions of the faith betray the beauty of the earliest Christian communities. So when when people talk about getting back to the early church or trying to be like the early church, I'm like, oh, we're still the early church. Like this is still the early church. I mean, we're only 2,000 years out, which seems like a lot to us, right? But I don't really think it is a lot in the scope of the history of the universe. Um, but look how diverse we are. We can't. We're, we have all these different opinions, these different structures. Uh, but the thing that's different um, so much is that. We have people who are still living in that Marcion spirit who are who are trying to create this uniformity, um, this very narrow, rigid doctrinal structure. And all traditions, I think, do it, whether it be Episcopal or Baptist or Pentecostal or or you know big O Orthodox. Um, we try to confine and because it, there's a level of control there, but I, I don't think we can contain uh, God. So how can we? You know, we can't fit him into our boxes, right? The boxes are good; they help us get to places. They help us understand God. They help us understand the world, but they're not the end all be all. Like I said earlier, I mentioned Ephesians 4. You know, there's this – Paul talks about we strive to maintain unity in the spirit until we obtain the unity of the faith. So there's a unity of the spirit and there's a unity of the faith. Um, you know, and the unity of the faith is this future thing, this gift from God that will come at some future point. I, I assume only when God sets everything to right maybe. I don't I don't even know if that that will happen then, right? Um you know, until then, Paul says we have to forgive and forbear those that that disagree with us. Uh, you don't, you know, because like or he just says forgive and forbear our brothers, right, and sisters in the faith. Um, but you don't have to forgive and forbear people who agree with you, who comply with you, right? You have to do it with the people who disagree, who who have different perspectives, who you don't think are quite um, have the best ideas, but. Unity in the spirit is much more, in, in Paul's language, important than unity of the faith. And that's what we have to work to maintain now. Um, so this, you know, there's, there's this early Christian diversity. However, you know, it was not a, uh, there was not like a number of totally separate communities or forms, um, within that. And so we have to be careful about saying Christian, like the multiplicity of Christianities or, um, so there, there is this, community, this Christian community, but it is diverse. And so it, it, sometimes we either um, homogenize those into one thing or some scholars, I think, try to separate it out until there's just all these different, uh, completely separate threads of Christianity, which I don't think is the case. I think that there's or one thread of Christianity, but it is beautifully orthodox and diverse. Um, Larry Hurtado says, you know, I've contended in um, for the diverse expressions of early Christianity seem to have been in a vibrant contact with one another, sometimes conflicting at other times seeming to agree uh, and to overlook those differences and at other times seeking to persuade others of their own views and emphasis. So there's this dialogue happening within these communities and the only time it gets shut down is when someone like Marcion wants to completely limit the voices that have a say so in shaping the church, right? 
And so that's when there's a, we draw the line. Uh, but otherwise there's this dialogue that is this open contextualizing dialogue that happens in the early church. Um, uh, Larry Hurtado would go on to say, nevertheless, uh, it, in that swirling diversity, we also see from a very early point strong efforts to establish a translocal and transethnic commonality. Uh, it's an obvious major aim reflected in Paul's Gentile mission, reflected, for example, in his extended effort in the collection for Jerusalem. Note Paul's claim in 1 Corinthians uh, that Jerusalem leaders and he proclaim a broadly shared message focused on Jesus. Of course, Paul also refers, you know, he, he refers to false brethren, false apostles, etc., indicating um, of the the real diversity and that there's a real there's still a division uh in, in some of these diverse expressions where they didn't consider these people a part of the faith um and so the early church this proto-orthodox church is beautifully diverse um and to me that is wonderful it is something um that i feel like as far as my own spirituality so so often um you know if you've been listening for a while you know that i i am ecumenical to say the least uh but in that so like i draw there's orthodox influence in my life there's anglican orthodox influence in my life, catholic or you know influence in my life pentecostal influence in my life anabaptist influence in my life so all of these things but the where I stand is that I can be influenced by those traditions. I can grow because of those traditions. My theology can be informed and shaped and my theological imagination can be spurred by those traditions. But that doesn't mean that I have to submit to those traditions, right? So like, even though right now I'm an Episcopal church, I wouldn't say that I'm Episcopalian or, you know, uh, and I don't have any intentions on, you know, converting to this, to orthodoxy or Catholicism or whatever, because I don't think that I have to submit, uh, to those things, right. To the, a more narrow understanding of Christianity to truly participate in the larger Christian tradition. And so my hope and my goal is that I would embody and, and hope to continue to cultivate space for people, um, not just to pick and choose, but to be, to be influenced and shaped by the larger Christian tradition. And that's what this whole project has been about from the get go is how can I be a part of seeing people's understanding of God and theology and church, um, expanded and move beyond what they've been given the narrow confines, uh, of an absolutism that they've been handed by the traditions that they've grown up in, or they've been influenced by up until this point. And so I think the way of proto-orthodoxy, that there's a beauty and diversity and that Christianity is only as orthodox as it is diverse is something that I'm – it's a hill I'm willing to die on. And maybe uh, there's people that are not willing to die on that hill and I, that's fine. Um, but for me, I need all of it. Right. I, I need all of it. I don't I can't pigeonhole myself into one tradition uh, because there's so much to learn from each other. What we have in common, the commonality, um, the core, the structure, the foundation is so much more important than what we disagree on. Like I want to be able to sit at the table with all of my brothers and sisters. Right. In the faith. And so if we believe in this eschatological end we believe in this future where god makes the world to rights um sets the world to right and 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 heals creation or, or whatever your view of eschatology and the the return of jesus or whatever it is you know ultimately we we look at this idea is that you know there's not going to be separate you know sections in the world to come for baptists or orthodox or whatever um and so if it's not going to be there, then it doesn't need to be that way here. And so my hope is that we could see his church eventually 
live into its multiplicity, live into its diversity, live into um, these beautiful, radical expressions of the faith uh, and how we can cultivate space for those. And like I said this earlier, I want to say it again, is that any claims of orthodoxy, whether that be Baptist telling you they're orthodox or the big O orthodox Catholic saying they have orthodox belief or whoever, um, that are not any any claims of orthodoxy that are not situated in an active desire for the flourishing of dynamic and diverse expressions of the faith betrays the beauty of the earliest Christian communities. And I fully believe that. And so I hope, uh, you know, so we, we live a life and the way we approach God and the way we approach scriptures, sometimes it, it's more reflective of Marcion. It's more reflective of Tatian. And we're trying to harmonize the gospels. We're trying to harmonize these scriptures. We're trying to make sense of all of it by reducing it and saying, oh, this is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. Instead of living in the tension and living in the diverse expressions and living with the fact that there's people who see things differently than us. Uh, and my hope would be is that this episode in this podcast, this my work in general would push you to a place of being able to appreciate the full um, depth uh, of and beauty that is the Christian tradition. Because it is, man, this is a big table. Um, some people think they got their own table, but they don't. Uh, and I, you know, as um, uh, Brian Zahn, who I've had on the show before, you know, he's, he said this, uh, and to quote him, he says, you know, I need orthodox mystery. I need... Um, Catholic beauty, Anglican liturgy, you know, and he goes on and he lists all these different things uh, that he needs. He needs all of it. And I, and I, I fully agree with him. And so I hope that you, uh, through this podcast, will be challenged in your narrow boxes and the confines of your doctrine and your understandings of God and church and what it means to live in the wake of this Christ event uh, will be challenged and be refreshed in new, diverse and beautiful ways. So thank you so much for listening. Again, I'm so sorry this episode is late for those of you who are regular listeners. Um, I do have a few things before we close out. If you're not subscribed to my newsletter, I would love to be able to pop in your inbox randomly. Um, I've been trying to be more consistent about it. There's links in the show notes for it. Uh, if you like to hear more about dead people, that is <laughs> like, I, that was, that was a weird pitch, right? But this is a lesson from dead guys, right? If you, so if you like to hear, um, uh, more, more stuff, more content about the lives of these people, uh, and how they can shape your life and how they're shaping mine, um, then that's one way through my newsletter that you can do that. Because I just, I focus on different people, just very brief, typically a quote, something that has impacted me, something they've said that I, I really enjoy or I find beauty in. Uh, so you can subscribe to that in the show notes. Also, just a shout out to everyone um, on Patreon who's uh, started to support me after the first of the year. I'm just blown away. I'm so thankful. We are 58% to our first goal, uh, and I cannot wait um, just to be able to continue to share this work with you. And I've the words and the encouragement that I've gotten, the the reviews on iTunes have just been so good and nourishing for my soul uh, and encouraging me to continue this work. And so thank you for partnering with me in that. Thank you for just uh, being a part of this journey. Um, and, you know, I was going to shout out the people who gave the last two uh, or three uh, reviews on iTunes, but your names are not actually your names. And so I don't know who you are, but thank you. <laughs> uh, I don't know, um, you know, exactly who you are, but I'm so thankful for your words and your encouragement. Uh, and last but not least, if you find value in this podcast, 
please consider, you know, buying me a cup of coffee uh, or, or whatever uh, by supporting me on Patreon. This work uh, costs money. Um, but more importantly, just share this episode. Uh, if you can share it with one person, if this episode impacted you, if you got something out of it, if you found value in it, share it with someone. Uh, if you really like this episode, you can go to, you can go to the Apple Podcasts uh, and give me a review. You wouldn't believe how much that helps other people find the show. Uh, and of course, be nice. You know, I've gotten a couple bad reviews here or there. Uh, you know, uh, no, I have thick skin. So I would love to hear what you actually think because it helps me um, be better at this and get better at this. You can find me on social media uh, at underscore Ryan Cagle uh, or at Exile Liturgy um, on Twitter. Those are social media, Twitter. Those are Twitter accounts. Um, I try to stay on Twitter fairly a lot, actually too much. I have a problem, uh, but you can find me there if you want to connect. I would love to talk to you, um, have a conversation. Um, so connect with me there. I look forward to hearing uh, from your feedback. And one last thing for my Patreon supporters. Um, I know I posted last week about how I was going to start giving away one book every month to uh, someone who supports me on Patreon. Uh, And that's still happening, but apparently posting that on Patreon was against their uh, terms of service because I can't have raffles or giveaways. Uh, But that said, if you support me on Patreon um, through the month of January and February, whoever the people... um, Midway through February, I'm giving away Dr. Thomas's Ord's book, God Can. So if you want a chance to enter and win that, then you can support me on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. And if you're already a supporter, then you will be randomly entered in a chance to win that book. And I can't tell you how much I recommend it. Um, it's such a great book. So I cannot wait to put it in one of your hands and hear how, uh, how insightful it was for you and how good and how much you got from it. So again, thanks everyone. I look forward to hearing from you. Grace and peace.